Hello all, and a very warm welcome to the True Crime Enthusiast podcast, your premier one-person and his cat, North Wales spare room-based true crime podcast that seeks for you each time around, or tries to anyway. Those tales are dark deeds that aren't all that familiar, perhaps long-forgotten ones, others that sound like they may come from the pen of someone, all for your listening. I'm as ever Paul, the creator, host and true crime enthusiast of the show's title. The world's smallest cow, Pixie, is of course here too. He's currently flat out gonking on the chair right next to me, which is his new favourite spot to be. And you folks complete the lot, the cherished enthusiasts of the show. It's wonderful to have you all join us today, which I thank you kindly for doing so. And I do hope that as you have, then you and yours are all good, all safe and all well. Firstly then, a big thank you for all of the responses to the previous episode of The Enthusiast, Web of Lies, which was the unreal tale of murderous chef Peter Walmer and some of the lies that he constructed around himself. What an absolute parasite is all I can describe him as. His crime is truly a horrific and callous one, and from the comments and feedback that I've received, I gather that that's a sentiment that's shared. Now on a bit of a lighter note concerning the episode, I've also enjoyed the different ways to describe just how freaky looking he is. I chucked my hand in a few times with things like he's more armpit than Brad Pitt, face like a beekeeper's glove and something that Jim Henson got fed up of making halfway through, but I've also seen face like a painter's radio chucked out there as well. A stuff, keep them coming guys. Big thanks as ever also go out to both the returning and new Patreon supporters of the show with shout outs to Joanne Dessa, David Byrne and Karen Rollings plus Nigel Summers, Christine Phillips and Louise Burton who have opted to annually support the show. Apologies if I've mispronounced anybody's name there. Thank you all so very much. It's so kind of you to do so and your support is so very much appreciated. Now if you want to join this kind lot supporting the show Perhaps you'll get yourself a bag full of swag from myself and certainly access to the plethora of bonus tales that being a supporter gets you. To learn the tales behind episodes such as The Strange Tale of Hellish Nell, Sanctuary, Predators in the Park or Disfigured, to name just a few of them, then it's very reasonable to do so and doing so is simpler than a contestant on Bridge of Lies. What an absolutely bloody dreadful show that is. It's awful. You just head over to Patreon and look for the show there. It's got the same logo and always remember that podcast suffix on it. Or scratch that, there is always a link in the episode show notes that will take you right to it. Now we'll have a tad more waffle post tale I'm sure, but we have an episode to get to. The first in what I've decided will be a series regular feature going forward now. Our very first Houses of Blood episode. And this tale certainly fits that criteria. It was a case that gave me the idea for the feature. For this episode, we're off down to one of the most picturesque parts of the UK, Cornwall, and to the town of of Marazion, I'm not sure, I'll, I'll go with Marazion, near Penzance, to hear a tale of unbelievable savagery that was committed for no discernible reason, really. I've got my own ideas possibly why, but we shall get to them during the wrap up. The episode contains details and descriptions of crimes and events, including graphic description of injury detail that some listeners may find disturbing and or distressing, so please use discretion whilst you're listening in all. Bearing that in mind, 
please join the True Crime Enthusiast for an episode that I've entitled Butchered in the Basement Flat. Have you ever received any messages from someone you know on your social media that you think, yeah, that's a bit weird, it's a bit disturbing that is, what have you sent me that for? I'm sure that many of you have. Some people will post any old shit up, won't they? And they really have no filter. There's no thought of people probably don't want to see or hear about messed up things like that. Yet for some people, there seems to be this almost subconscious need to express what they're feeling to someone, anyone, who will react to what they have to say or show. It replaces talking to someone. Mother of four, Rebecca Tilford, from Kirkham in Lancashire, knows only too well what it's like to receive something so disturbing in a message. For images you really shouldn't share was exactly the kind of thing that her cousin, Dean Lowe, used to share quite freely online on his Facebook page, either oblivious or carefree as to who would see it. Now today, he's unable to share things as freely as he once did, as a direct result of something that he shared in a message with not just Rebecca, but other members of his family also. Had he not, then it's quite possible that today, he could still be sharing disturbing things online for whoever to see. Instead, he is today only a couple of years into serving a life sentence for a brutal, callous murder. I know that I'm jumping ahead of myself a tad there, so I'll go back to the beginning and explain. Our tale this time around concerns two of those people in society that, without me trying to sound cruel, through their own actions, fall on hard times, and following things that they've done, choices they've made, or the lifestyle that they've opted for, find themselves ostracised from their family, and sometimes even homeless. Two such of these people were Dean Lowe and his partner, Kirby Noden, who were both originally from the Cheshire area, but due to one thing or another, heavy drug and alcohol abuse and fallings out with family members, had adapted a somewhat nomadic lifestyle, shall we say, travelling southwards down the country, and by 2017 were living in a basement flat at St Elmo's on North Street in the Cornwall town of Marazion. This story is a sad but all too familiar one. With both growing up in Winsford in Cheshire, their parents being friends, they'd first begun dating in their teenage years, but had soon split. Rebecca Tilford, as we've said, the cousin to Dean and a friend of Kirby's, recalls, We grew up together. I spent the summer holidays with my nana and he'd stay too. Dean was good fun, he was loud, he was a clown and he'd always look after me and my sisters. Kirby was lovely, she was a really kind-hearted, nice girl. She followed Dean round like a little puppy, she absolutely thought the world of him. They were really young when they got together, just 14. Following this split, the two went their separate ways. Kirby went on to have other relationships and eventually three children, having sadly lost a further two. Whilst Dean, well, coming from a tough home already, where he'd been fostered from just a few months old because of his parents' drug problems. In his teens, Dean went somewhat right off the rails, shall we say, and his behaviour deteriorated. Rebecca continues, 
At first, he'd do things like smash windows, but by the time he was 19 or 20, he had to come and live with me because he bit someone's nose off in an argument with a local family. I ended up having to get him picked up though, because he broke into a load of cars and set them all on fire. Dean would always think he was doing the right thing. My sister had a boyfriend who beat her up, so he stabbed him with a screwdriver. So, add drug and alcohol abuse to this, and you have a highly troubled, highly dangerous young man indeed. He was in and out of trouble with the police, and spent periods in custody over the years, and then, in his early 20s, reportedly at his father's funeral, he reconnected with Kirby, and they once again became an item, rekindling their relationship. Now it wouldn't be fair of me to say that it was Dean who encouraged Kirby to begin using drugs, perhaps she already was, but he certainly did nothing to discourage its use, and by the turn of 2010, both were using copious amounts, says Rebecca. They had a chaotic lifestyle, they'd post pictures of ecstasy and all sorts. Kirby even said she was worried about the amount of heroin that Dean took. Such a lifestyle soon burned bridges with Kirby's family. There's no record of Dean's mother, as well as caused up domestic upheaval when Kirby's children were taken into care as a result of this. Following more rows with family, both Kirby and Dean upped and left the Cheshire area and headed southwards along the western coastal path of the UK, eventually finding themselves living in a tent for six months in the Cornwall area. Yet, this was a lifestyle that both were happy with, and they said so to the family members that they remained in touch online with. Says Rebecca, I always encouraged Dean to get help, just like he always looked out for me when I was little. He went through phases. There were times he'd say he was happy playing his guitar on the beach. In 2013, they told me they'd got married on the beach, but that was never confirmed. Kirby told me she'd married a soulmate. He was the love of her life. Reportedly, the couple did turn to a drug addiction charity around 2013 or 2014 to try and get clean of heroin. But then following this, started to use cannabis much more frequently and disturbing other forms of a legal high too. To get that buzz, that kick, if funds were low or cannabis wasn't available for whatever reason, Lowe would even resort to doing something called bloodletting where he would seriously self-harm, the severe loss of blood from self-inflicted wounds and some of these wounds were talking pints of blood, causing him to feel light-headed and completely out of reality. Boggles the mind, doesn't it? He had no qualms about sharing graphic images of what he'd done to himself on his Facebook page either. In fact, the entire page seemed to consist of three common themes. Firstly, there were various pictures of his self-harming, images including intricate and extensive carvings to his forearm, a still of a deep-looking circular wound to his arm with a comment, can see me muscle, lol, and a video captioned free head rush bloodletting, which showed one of his limbs cut open with blood gushing from the wound, spurting and even hitting the camera. He also had the random pictures that everyone seems to have. In a bizarre picture from January 2016, Lois captured striking an odd pose wearing women's underwear, 
presumably belonging to Kirby. And there are a series of sweaty looking selfies, all taken from close up showing a greasy ew looking low with his various tattoos on display, including one of Kirby's name across his chest. He also appeared to have a penchant for exotic pets, as interspersed with these gory images were also pictures of snakes and spiders that he seems to have owned, and Lowe's dogs, two Staffordshire Bull Terriers, with many comments he'd added talking of the battles with the RSPCA to keep hold of the animals that he'd had. But by far the most common theme through Lowe's Facebook page was of his drug use. It littered with pictures of drug paraphernalia that he'd 18 together. For example, an adapted empty Fanta bottle was pictured, used as a bong, and headed with the following pearl of wisdom. 20 years of smoking weed and I still think these kick ass better than a 100 quid glass bong and don't break in your bag on the way to the beach. Easy repairs, gets dirty, change the bottle, banging. Another picture shows a dishevelled looking low, already looking ripped to the tits on something, with a caption, ready to bake, get baked, lol, golden syrup bong, love it. He's a better orator than Kofi Annan, eh? Lowe had also boasted to one friend that he couldn't cope without cannabis in his system, had branded himself the biggest stoner in the world, and in more than one post, boasts of smoking a, quote, fucking mental concentrated weed, and had even also uploaded a picture of a pasty and a cannabis bong on Christmas Day, describing it as his festive lunch. Delightful, eh? This, then, was the lifestyle that Lowe and Kirby had when they found themselves living in a basement flat in St. Elmo's in the picturesque seaside town of Marezion in 2017. Though they were known in the locality and were considered a quiet couple, Kirby would be seen much more often than him and was known to the local businesses there, Lowe leaving things like shopping and the running of the flat to her while he skulked about inside. However, with what money they had being spent mainly on drugs and both of them claiming unemployment benefits, Kirby didn't have employment that she could forge friendships from and wasn't particularly close to anyone. They did have acquaintances from the local community, a homeless couple named Peter Greenacre and Elizabeth Turney, who used to buy cannabis from Lowe and for a time paid him £20 to be allowed to sleep on the living room floor of the basement flat. But more often than not, Kirby would make do with periodically being in touch online with her friends and family back in Cheshire. Rebecca Tilford recalled later. Kirby and I spoke every day in 2016, just general chat really, and she sounded normal and happy. But I didn't hear from her after November. It was an example of how the couple's lifestyle would be. They'd be in regular touch with loads of people and then drop off the radar for days, weeks, months on end. So, because of this, and because she was not close enough to anyone in Marezion, it wasn't really remarked upon when, from the beginning of January 2017, Kirby stopped being a familiar figure in the small town. In fact, the last people to really remember seeing her were Peter Greenacre and Elizabeth Turney, who, on the 11th of January, had visited the flat to buy cannabis from Dean Lowe. 
They'd vividly remembered seeing Kirby there because the occasion was somewhat of a strained one after they'd argued previously and Lowe had told them to leave the flat some weeks earlier, meaning the couple were, at the time, living in a tent on the outskirts of Penzance. Yet, a supply of high-quality skunk obviously ruled over them seeing their ass. She hadn't been seen, however, two days after this, on January the 13th, when police had been called to the flats on North Street over a neighbour dispute, when a neighbour of the couple, Terry Roderick, had complained that Lowe's dogs were fouling in the flat's communal courtyard. The attending officers knocked on the door of the basement flat, which was answered by a dirty and dishevelled-looking Lowe, who stepped out to meet them and closed the flat door behind him, presumably not wanting to let his dogs escape. Perfectly reasonably, they were to later claim, he showed them the courtyard and explained how he'd cleaned up the dog's mess, resulting in them leaving and no further action being taken on the matter. Six days later, on January the 19th, Lowe sent his cousin Rebecca a message on Facebook, which read, Can't remember half of what I've done, I just know it's bad. I'm so sorry, if you want to have a go at me, maybe I'll remember. Sorry cuz, I really am. Although she did reply asking him what he was on about, Lowe didn't reply back to her messages, and she stopped messaging. As I've said, it was not an unusual thing for the couple to go dark. Over the next few months, however, Lowe indeed posted periodically on Facebook, uploading things such as a meme about relationship difficulties where a character appears to tear his heart out and smoke it, as well as sharing an ITV news story about the death of Moore's murderer Ian Brady accompanied by a comment from Lowe which said Proposed dead lol, butlud. Yes, your guess is as good as mine. He also by this time, we're talking May 2017 now, had changed his Facebook profile picture, it now showing a thickly bearded, dishevelled looking Lowe, sporting a tribal design tattoo to the left side of his face. Rebecca recalled, Realising he was back online, I sent a message. She surely could not have been prepared for the responses she would get from Lowe, however. Who knows what had gone through his mind in the quiet times of those months since he'd last messaged in January, but by May, with his cousin messaging him, it was like the floodgates had opened. Rebecca said later, I don't know why he chose me to tell. I think he wanted to get caught, as he couldn't live with what he'd done. Lowe's poorly written yet lengthy replies to his cousin revealed to Rebecca's horror a full, horrifying story of how he'd killed his partner of several years, the then 32-year-old Kirby Noden. An example of one such message Lowe had sent reads, Facts are this, there was a body looking like Kirby on my floor, was there for days, not just an overnight dream, was still there day after day. I cut it up and put it in the bin and flushed fattened guts down the toilet. The blood is still there now and the pool of matter is still stained on the floor. Lowe had also included photos with these messages, one of them showing a blood-spattered ceiling. Rebecca said later, My first thought was Dean was off his head. Then I sent my mum and sisters a few of the messages. I also spoke to Kirby's mum and cousin. 
when we realised nobody had heard from her, my mum phoned the police. As I said, like the floodgates had opened, Lowe had also spoken to other family members saying similar things. Another cousin of his, Elliot Sanderson, who'd stayed in periodic touch with Lowe over the years, received a message from Lowe on May the 17th, saying that Kirby was missing, and which added, There's two alternatives. She's dead and been chopped up and put down the toilet and bins down the road, or she's setting me up. He then sent a further series of rambling messages, asking Elliot if he knew anything of Lowe's childhood, if he had killed his sister when he was three years old, and asked him nonsensical questions about injuring school friends or shooting his father, all of which Elliot was unable to answer. Lowe then added, Now look at me, superstar loser. Should have given me a lobotomy at the age of five. When Elliot replied back that Lowe should get professional help, he responded three minutes later with, Pretty fucked up story to tell. Kirby is gone. I hope for her sake the body I chopped up was fake. Lowe then sent him pictures of the ceiling and walls splashed with blood and the words, And all that blood splattered up the wall ain't no joke. Something's going on, he added. Either I'm getting set up or I murdered Kirby. I had a blackout. Woke up with a body on the floor. Scared, so I just got rid. Put body in bin down the road. I remember cutting it up and putting it in bin for defo. I heard the bin men find all the meat. They didn't know what it was. The carpet had to be lifted because of all the body matter. It was left for a week. It took a week to get rid of the body. It was horrible. My head's gone. I know what I saw. It was real. It seems real. Either Kirby dead or set up. When asked later in court what he made of the messages at the time, Elliot said, I didn't really know what to make of it. I was in a pub at the time, although they were bizarre messages to be getting at any time from anybody. Bizarre indeed, eh? Another of Lowe's cousins, Lauren Barlow, who had not spoken to him for 12 years, received a message request on Facebook from Lowe the same day, in which he asked her, You know about Kirby, I take it? When she replied to him that she didn't, and asked him what had happened, Lowe replied, Either I've been set up or I killed her. Don't know for sure, could be a setup, but for defo there was somebody in my flat. I don't know whether to believe it. I woke up with a body looking like Kirby on the floor. She was dead. I put the body in the bin. I've got weird things in my head that the whole thing is a setup, but yeah, there was a body. I put it in a wheelie bin down the road. So, by this time, this is three family members getting such bizarre yet disturbing messages from Dean Lowe on the same day, and sure enough, nobody had heard from Kirby for several months. So at 1.12am on Thursday, May the 18th, 2017, a call was placed to Merseyside Police by Lauren's mother, Tony Ann Barlow. Merseyside Police then duly contacted Devon and Cornwall Police, and a local officer, PC Craig Neal was later that morning dispatched to the flat that Lowe and Kirby shared. PC Neal duly attended, and upon arrival, discovered Dean Lowe crouching down behind the communal front door of the property. He then accompanied Lowe down to the basement flat, and upon entering, 
could immediately see amongst the squalid, stinking flat large evidence of blood staining to the surfaces, as well as a missing carpet. PC Neil was told by Lowe that the blood that was evident belonged to his girlfriend and admitted her murder, saying that he'd cut her body up before disposing of it in a wheelie bin. He said he wasn't sure of the details and that he did not know how he'd done it, but he could see the images in his head. It was clear she was dead, he told the officer, because he had to cut out the carpet because it was full of blood and guts. Before he was arrested on suspicion of murder, and with what must have been more than a passing concern for his own safety by this time, Lowe had also told PC Neil that he'd made a necklace out of Kirby's teeth, and he didn't know why it had taken until May for them to come and arrest him. Unreal that, isn't it? Imagine hearing that. It must chill your blood and really be the stuff nightmares are made of. In his police interview after arrest, Lowe said that months before there had been an argument after which there was a body on the floor in the flat and he'd removed it in pieces. He then shortly afterwards retracted this claim and added that Kirby was actually alive and living with a man called Dan Entwistle and that it was all a setup. Two days later, Officers from Devon and Cornwall Police drove up to interview Rebecca and the various members of Lowe's family that he'd messaged, with Lowe remaining in custody. A forensic officer had also been up on the Friday following Lowe's arrest to take DNA samples from Kirby's direct blood relations, the mother and children, to fast-track test against the copious amounts of blood that covered the scene of the squalid flat. On the Saturday evening, a liaison officer telephoned Kirby's mother Anita and told her, not unkindly I must add, to prepare herself because, a quote from Anita's own later words, A police family liaison officer called us that night and told us that Kirby's blood was all over the house in Cornwall and that the amount of blood they found at Kirby's house was either life-threatening or life-ending. From what we can see, it's life-ending, he said. I passed the phone to Kirby's sister, Vicky. I couldn't listen to any more. My heart just broke. I couldn't stop crying. I felt suicidal. All I wanted was my girl back. But I had to keep going for Kirby's children, and my friends kept me strong. Rebecca Tilford, meanwhile, was told the following day that her cousin had been charged with Kirby's murder. She recalled, It was difficult. I didn't sleep for days after. When I did, I woke up screaming. I was picturing what was happening in that flat. The people I grew up with. Sure enough, at 2.30pm on Sunday the 21st of May 2017, 32-year-old Dean Lowe was charged with the murder of his partner, Kirby Noden, charges which he appeared at Truro Magistrates Court on Monday the 22nd of May to answer. Speaking only to confirm his name, age and address, which he gave as North Street, Marazion, Lowe was immediately remanded in custody. Meanwhile, with copious amounts of blood covering the entire flat, but no hint of a body, a missing persons poster appeal featuring a picture of a smiling, happy-looking Kirby was issued, which if you head to the show's Instagram page is reproduced there, carefully worded as to say that she'd initially been treated as a high-risk missing person 
following concerns for her welfare from her friends and relatives in the northwest on Thursday the 18th of May 2017. It continued, Detectives are keen to speak to anyone who has had contact with or seen Kirby since December 2016. Kirby is yet to be located and searches and inquiries continue to trace her. We remind everyone that if they have any information at all pertaining to the whereabouts or movements of Kirby Noden, 32, from Marazion, to please contact the police at 101 at dc.police.uk or by calling 101, quoting crime reference CR slash 038465 slash 17. Now, this was very much police appealing for anyone to have found her body to come forward, without saying that, as due to the amount of blood found in the flat belonging to her, there was little chance she would be found alive. And Lowe had already admitted to several people, including police officers before he'd retracted this, that he'd killed her and dismembered the body, and disposed of her remains between the bins at the end of the road, and flushing her organs down the toilet. If this were true, how, after four months, would there be any way to even begin to start looking? Where? The trial of Dean Lowe for the murder of Kirby Noden began at Truro Crown Court almost a year later, on Tuesday April the 24th, 2018, after he'd formally entered a not guilty plea to the charge of murder on the previous day. Over the three-week trial, the full tale of their lives together, including their homelessness, their drug use, and low self-harm, was spelled out to the jury, as well as the disturbing and grisly evidence presented that strongly suggested what he was accused of, and which was to stun the courtroom and the community. How he had killed her, how he had cut her up, and how he had disposed of her body in nearby wheelie bins and down the toilet. The court was also to hear how police had visited the flat around the time Kirby was believed to have been murdered, some four months before Lowe was charged with it, but left after speaking to him briefly outside his door, which he'd pulled closed behind him. A mere door away from seeing what must have then been like an abattoir. During his opening remarks, prosecution barrister Paul Dunkel's QC said, the prosecution say that the defendant killed Kirby Noden sometime between January 11th and January the 14th last year. The defendant and Kirby Nolan were living together in a flat in Marazion. Theirs was a somewhat chaotic lifestyle and marred by the use of illegal drugs. They lived on state benefits and were occasionally homeless. They lived in Torquay, Launceston, then Marazion. It was in that month, January last year, that the defendant attacked her in their bedroom of the flat, beating her to death with a rock and a metal pole. Her blood was splattered around the bedroom and over the walls and ceiling from the attack upon her, and it had soaked into the mattress where her body had been laying. It was also on the weapons he'd used to murder her. Having killed her, the defendant moved her body, probably in pieces, and cleaned up the worst of the blood and cutting away the worst of the carpet. He then disposed of her body, so nothing was found but blood. For four months, from mid-January to mid-May, he lived on in the flat in the state it was in. Living in the midst of what he had done must have been gruesome. 
No one other than the defendant knew what had happened to Kirby Noden until May of last year, when the defendant began to send text messages to members of his family in Cheshire that there's been a body on the floor of the flat, which he'd cut up and put into bins and down the toilet. They contacted the police, and when the police went to the flat, the defendant showed that officer the blood and admitted to the police officer he had killed Kirby Noden and disposed of her body. When the uniformed officer, PC Craig Neal, had arrived at the flat to investigate, Mr Dunkles told the court, Lowered confessed and told him, January, that's when I did it, Mr Dunkles continued. He went on to tell the officer how he did it. He said there was blood on the floor and he had to cut up the carpet because of the blood and guts. The defendant told the officer he must have killed her and cut her up. He also said he had made a necklace out of Kirby's teeth. Now this was a claim that was never established, for there was no report of such a grisly relic ever being discovered or produced as evidence in court. You'd never forget seeing something like that though, would you, eh? Bloody hellfire. Mr Dunkles then moved on to talk through the evidence gathered from the bedroom of the flat, continuing, Who could live alongside the decaying corpse of the murder victim? The defendant got rid of the body out of the flat, but did little else to clean up the flat, and the blood in the bedroom tells its own vivid story. He explained how DNA samples were then taken from Kirby's son and mother, which revealed it was indeed Kirby's blood found staining the flat, claiming that expert analysis revealed a variety of contact blood staining, and the splatter of blood belonging to Kirby around the room with some samples indicating, I quote, multiple blows into wet blood on a surface on or near the floor. There had also been blood samples found higher up the walls, suggesting blood being dispersed from a raised weapon, and a mattress heavily saturated with Kirby's blood had been flipped over, resulting in blood ending up on the bed's wooden slats. Lowered remained sleeping on this mattress for the next four months. He went on. Heavy blood staining was found on a rock at the end of the bed, and there were other pieces of rock in other parts of the bedroom and living room. The rock had been heavily stained with contact blood staining before breaking after the blood had been deposited, indicating larger pieces of rock had broken in the course of the attack. He continued that a heavy metal pole with three screws protruding from it, and with traces of Kirby's blood on it, was also located in the bathroom, also having the prints of the defendant's right palm and middle finger in the blood on it. These, he suggested, were the items that were used to murder her, the rock striking him with such force that it had broken into at least five pieces, whilst the metal pole had been used to finish her off he claimed. Mr Dunkles told the court. So, what does the distribution of blood in the flat tell us? It says the defendant attacked her with a rock that fractured into pieces from the force of the blows. He also used a metal pole with blows directed at her head, and the victim must have been lying in bed, but ended up on the floor where she bled more, and further blows were delivered. It's a scene you don't want to imagine, isn't it? Forensic investigator Michael Wheelhouse gave evidence to support these claims, 
telling the court how he'd attended the courtyard flat on July the 20th, 2017 to carry out a follow-up investigation of the scene, specifically, I quote, to examine the floor of the bedroom for traces of blood staining. Mr. Wheelhouse told the court how he divided the by then emptied room into 24 sectors before spraying the chemical luminol, which emits a blue-green glow when it reacts with traces of blood that would otherwise be invisible to the human eye. Its results were then captured in a long exposure photo, which showed blood on the floor on the area between the window and where the bed was previously positioned, he said. The reaction obtained was very strong, and there was visible blood staining on the floor as well. At some point, the blood that was on the floor on the left side of the bed was either diluted or spread, or subsequently cleaned up. There were some smaller spots, which could have been deposited as a consequence of an action which caused blood to become airborne, such as an impact into wet blood, or blood cast from a moving object. A rucksack with Kirby's blood inside, surrounded by a greasy discoloration, was also found during an examination of the flat, with the crown suggesting it was either used to transport parts of her, or objects that played a part in the murder. It was shown to the jury of six men and six women, along with a green hooded top belonging to Lowe, with several visible traces of Kirby's spattered blood covering it. Mr. Dunkles then outlined the Crown's belief that, following Kirby's death, Lowe took possession of her bank card, saying, The use of Miss Noden's bank account shows a clear pattern. Her benefit payment was paid in, and then withdrawn in cash from an ATM in the following days. The last time this happened was on January the 10th, and £220.40 was credited, and £220 withdrawn shortly after that. No further ATM withdrawals were made after this. It's clear that the defendant had Kirby Noden's bank card after he killed her, but he did not have her PIN and was unable to withdraw cash from an ATM. Thereafter, there was a whole series of transactions that did not require the knowledge or use of a PIN. Kirby Noden's personal independence payments were still going into her account and the money was used by internet and telephone transactions a pattern that was repeated until May the 5th. This evidence was supported by testimony from Devon and Cornwall Police Financial Investigator Joanne Wilson, who outlined a pattern of activity on Kirby's account where she would regularly receive her personal independence payment and employment support allowance from the Department for Work and Pensions, which would be followed by her making large cash withdrawals shortly afterwards, which meant there was, as quoted, never really any money left in the account. Miss Wilson confirmed to the court the £220.40 personal independence payment paid into Miss Noden's bank account on January the 10th, 2017, which was followed afterwards by a £220 cash withdrawal at the post office in Marazion. She said this day was another example of a pattern of use on the account. Now it suggested that Kirby herself had done this and the court had heard she had been seen alive the following day by Peter Greenacre and Elizabeth Turney. However, on January the 14th, three incorrect attempts were made to enter the pin relating to the bank card, which resulted in the pin being locked. Although of course, 
the card would have still been able to order goods online by entering the long card number and the three-digit code on the back of the card. Mr Dunkles asked Miss Wilson, Moving through January, February, March, April and May, were there any other cash withdrawals? Miss Wilson replied, There were balance inquiry attempts, but no successful PIN entries, and there were no more ATM cash withdrawals. Examples given of internet purchases on the card leading up to Lowe's arrest included EE mobile phone top-ups, and purchases of goods from Domino's Pizza, Exotic Pets, Argos and Asda. Giving more details of these online orders, Miss Wilson continued, On January 23rd, there was a £161.91 purchase of a camping stove, camping mat, sleeping bag and two-man dome tent from Argos. And on March the 9th, an electric nail grinder used to grind the claws of dogs was also bought. The court had already heard how police had found this camping gear when they conducted a search of the property following Lowe's arrest. The jury was then told how on January the 24th, Lowe had contacted the DWP to inform them that Miss Noden was no longer living with him and that going forward he would like his income support allowance instead paid into his own bank account, which following this request it was. Miss Wilson concluded her evidence by describing how she had conducted extensive inquiries at more than 20 banking entities in towns to which Miss Noden had known links, but had never found any financial trace of her. Mr Dunkles next presented to the jury evidence of Facebook messenger conversations with Lowe's cousins Rebecca Tilford and Sarah Caldwell in January 2017 where he said he was fucked up, sorry, and expecting a hiding, before in May, Lowe had had further conversations with his cousins, saying he was waiting for judgment day. Mr Dunkel said, Indeed, he was waiting for judgment day, living in the flat where he killed Kirby Noden, and a murder was undiscovered. He lived on, disposing of the body and part of the carpet, but the weapons used to bludgeon her to death were there, with her blood still all around him, on the floor, on the mattress, and on the walls. It was playing on his mind, and he was troubled by the memory of what he'd done. The jury then heard the messages sent by Lowe to his cousin Elliot Sanderson, and to Rebecca Tilford on the 17th of May, as you heard me tell previously. He appeared to have written in a largely copy-and-pasted message, had blackout, hazy argument, Cut her up and put body in bin down the road. Remember cutting it up and putting it in the bin. Heard bin men pick it up, but they didn't know what it was. Either I'm getting set up by her and Dan, or I've killed Kirby. I hope for her sake the body I chopped up was fake and a setup. Facts are there was a body looking like Kirby on my floor. It was there for days. Flushed blood and guts down the toilet. Mr Dunkles added, he said he saw a knee, but it didn't look like Kirby's knee, so he put it on top of a bin so bin men could find it. He had memories he couldn't explain, then said he blacked out and remembered it being smaller and chopped up. As you can imagine, the jury were pretty shocked by what they were hearing. Detailed evidence strongly pointing to his culpability in murder, 
and account after account of Lowe admitting what he'd done to his relations. And yet, he'd retracted this admittance, instead now claiming some wild, absolute bollocks-sounding story that not only was Kirby not actually dead, but she'd framed him for a murder, a plan cooked up between her and a lover of hers, a guy called Dan Entwistle, and that she'd even telephoned him from where she was living, in South Africa, whilst he was on remand, to gloat about this. I kid you not, honestly. On Friday the 4th of May, Lowe, who'd not opted to attend each day of his trial, took to the witness stand and told the jury his version of events. Defence barrister Anna Vigors QC asked Lowe a series of questions about his early life, with Lowe explaining that he'd known Kirby Noden from a young age as their parents were friends in Cheshire, and that they'd both dated as teenagers before getting back together when they were in their mid-twenties after reconciling at Lowe's father's funeral. Following fallouts with family members regarding childcare, the couple eventually moved to Torquay, where Lowe said they got into a £100 a day drug and alcohol habit. After two or three years spent living in Devon, they upped and left here, heading for Cornwall. Lowe told the court, We picked up a rucksack and a tent and walked the coast path. We had a map of Cornwall and just walked, heading as far away from the life we had as possible. It took us a few months, but we ended up at Breadline in Penzance. Lowe then explained they'd moved around a number of Cornish towns together, including Bodmin, Truro, St Austell, Launceston, Newquay and Camborne, before moving into the basement flat at St Elmo Flats in Marazion together. When asked to describe their lifestyle at the time, Lowe said, We'd been homeless quite a lot. We'd been drinking on the streets and taking drugs to forget all the bad memories. Lowe also claimed that a man called Dan Entwistle, an old school friend of Kirby's, had followed them to both Torquay and then Marazion, where he either lived or spent a lot of time in an upstairs flat at St Elmo's. Lowe said they both had access to Kirby's bank account where some of their benefit claims were paid, and that on one occasion when he'd left for the post office, Kirby had smashed a window, badly cutting her hand and leaking blood around the property. As blood had been brought up, with this devious bugger attempting a half-hearted story to try and explain why Kirby's blood was around everywhere, Miss Figures then moved on to ask Lowe about his bloodletting habit. He said in response, I cut into my veins and stuff to let the blood out. A couple of pints, four pints, and it would be like drinking a pint of vodka. I'd get dizzy before almost passing out. Lowe told the court that he and Kirby used to do this regularly in the living room and bedroom of the flat, and rarely cleaned up after this letting, saying, We weren't very good at clearing it up. We weren't very good at clearing up anything. He claimed that he and Kirby had spent the Christmas of 2016 taking drugs and self-harming, but he'd last saw her around the 10th to the 15th of January before she'd left him for another man and moved to South Africa. So Miss Vigors then asked Lowe to talk the jury through what he said had happened the day Kirby allegedly left. The story Lowe was to come out with was bizarre, to say the least. He began. We had an argument in the morning about her cheating on me with Dan. 
Over the past few months, I took notice of a few more things. I've had blackouts of being raped. I knew she'd been trying to set me up. She was shouting. Dan opened the door and came in, and I got drugged with some sort of date rape drug. I remember just passing out in the living room. He went on, bizarrely claiming. I was then raped by two people, a black guy and another guy. Kirby had a colostomy bag and started banging it and spraying blood on the floor. I remember people running in the flat and Kirby smashing a rock on the floor saying, This is your stone cold heart and now it's broken. Lowe alleged that he came around on the couch in the living room and had memories of Kirby putting a bag of meat on the floor before leaving with Dan. He added, Rick came down and I told him what had gone on. We took bits of meat, put some in the freezer and filled up the bin. Lowe speculated that the clean-up operation took him and this Rick, a neighbour of his from upstairs who he got on well with and often did drugs with. It took him about an hour, but after that he didn't do any cleaning of the flat and instead just took loads of drugs. When asked if Lowe had seen Kirby since she'd left, he replied, Yeah, two or three times back in Marazion when she came to the flat. She came back with Dan once to have a go at me. They came into the garden, started laughing at me, and knocked me up. He added, by now his tale becoming even more unreal, I even spoke to her a couple of times. One was a phone call just after dinner when I was on remand in Exeter Prison. A member of staff opened my door and a prisoner came in. They came into my cell, put me on my belly and threw me onto the bed. A guy passed me a mobile phone and on the other end it was Kirby. She started shouting down the phone and said, You're fucked now. You've got life in jail and I've got a new life out here. When asked where the here was, Lowe told the court how other prisoners had told him she was in South Africa. He then added that they'd burned mannequins outside his cell and had bullied him during his time inside. Miss Figures then asked Lowe why he had sent the series of Facebook messages to family members where he seemingly admitted cutting up a body, presumably Kirby, to which he replied by reeling off a long list of illegal drugs he was using at the time, blaming use of these. I was drugged up, he said simply, and about the dismembering, said, yeah, all the meat and stuff. They had caused visions in my head, which is how he explained his statement to arresting officer PC Neal that he had killed Kirby. When asked about a purchase of camping equipment using a card after she was allegedly killed, Lowe said, I bought it as I was planning going on holiday. Living on the streets is a much better lifestyle. No bills, and near enough every homeless person you see knows where to get drugs from. Miss Figures concluded for the defence by asking Lowe, the only witness to be called, if he had killed Kirby Noden, to which he replied, no. And when asked about where he understood it to be currently, he added, in South Africa, doing missionary work. In his closing speech to the jury, Mr Dunkles told how despite extensive searches by the major crime investigation team and officers from other specialisms, including financial investigation, 
forensic support and specialist search officers, the search for Kirby's remains and any indication that she was alive elsewhere all proved negative. With all inquiries and media campaigns revealing no trace of Kirby and no contact with friends or organisations since January 2017. Lowe, he told the jury, had gotten rid of his partner's body, so nothing has been found apart from her blood. Destroying Lowe's account, Mr. Dunkles added. Police checked with who the defendant said were the relatives of Dan Entwistle and checked with schools in Cheshire, but there was no record of that name. What the defendant has done is taken a surname from his past and created a fictional story to try and explain the evidence in the flat. Miss Snowden didn't have a passport, so couldn't have fled abroad. Good enough, yeah? The jury thought so too. After nine and a half hours of deliberation, the jury of six men and six women returned shortly before 3pm on the afternoon of Thursday the 10th of May to deliver a unanimous verdict, finding Dean Lowe guilty of the brutal murder of Kirby Noden, with some jurors visibly upset by the harrowing case they'd ruled over and being passed tissues by a court usher. However, Lowe wasn't present in court to hear this verdict. As I said, he'd missed sections of the trial to remain in prison, so legal representatives instead entered a brief period of discussion about when he would be sentenced. It was the following week when he appeared before presiding Mrs Justice May at Exeter Crown Court, where she was sitting, a hearing during which the court first heard a victim impact statement from Kirby's mother, Anita Noden, who said her daughter was, quote, a warm and caring person who would do anything for anybody, but she'd been prevented from staying in touch with her family by a controlling low. Miss Snowden added that the way in which her daughter was killed and her body disposed of, believing that her remains had been incinerated by unsuspecting council workers, meant that she could never have a funeral, which had made her family's grieving so, so much worse. Now I always think that that really must do as well. Stay tuned for a bit later on this series where I've been researching a case where the victim's body has never been found, and now never can be. And whilst I have been, it's crossed my mind more than once that it's heartbreaking enough to lose a loved one in such horrific, truly awful circumstances, but to know that, and not know where their remains lie, it must be terrible, it must be absolutely unbelievable. Addressing Lowe, Mrs Justice May said Lowe had consistently lied, showing the opposite of remorse, and telling him, By all accounts, Kirby was besotted with you, following you wherever you went, doing whatever you asked her to do. When she messaged one of your cousins about a form of marriage ceremony that you and she had undertaken on a beach, she described you as the love of her life. You, on the other hand, spoke of her as that skanky bitch. It was Kirby who went out and did the shopping, got the cash, found accommodation for you both. You sat in your basement flat watching TV and taking, on your own account, whatever drugs you could get. On the occasions when you could not afford any more drugs, you would bloodlet, sometimes as much as two pints, purely for the head rush. Mrs Justice May said that no one knew whether he'd killed Kirby in one continuous attack with a rock that was left smashed into five pieces, 
and a metal pole with three protruding screws which he used to finish her off, adding, Whether it was the work of minutes, or of hours, or perhaps even days, for however long she was conscious with your blows raining down on her, you've not said, and there is no body to reveal the extent of your deadly abuse. Whatever the time frame, this was a pitiless attack on someone who had done nothing but love you devotedly. You must have eaten, slept, watched TV and taken your drugs next to Miss Noden's corpse for several days, with two bull terriers in the same room. You cut up what remained of her, wrapped some in the carpet and took the rest in rucksacks to the bins. The bin men who collected them noticed nothing. In this bleak, desolate manner was Kirby's life ended and her remains obliterated, no one there to mourn or say goodbye. Not only have you denied her and her family of her life, you have also taken from them the dignity of commemorating her death. She told Lois defence existed of utterly cruel lies, and passing the mandatory life sentence upon him, told him he would serve a minimum tariff of 28 years before he would be eligible for parole, when, should he live up until then, he will be 61 years of age. Lowe said nothing as he was taken away to begin his sentence. Following the verdict, on the steps of Exeter Crown Court, Detective Inspector Ian Ringrose of Devon and Cornwall Police said, Based on the evidence in our investigation, it is my belief that Lowe had killed Kirby sometime between the 11th and the 14th of January 2017. On the evening of the 17th of May 2017, Lowe made disclosures via Facebook to relatives in Cheshire that gave them concerns about Kirby's safety and led them to alert the police in their local area who in turn notified officers of the fears as to Kirby's murder. On the 18th of May 2017, officers found Lowe at the courtyard flat and arrested him on suspicion of Kirby's murder due to what he told them and the scene that they discovered. Lowe had made certain disclosures in the Facebook messages and to the arresting officer to suggest that he had killed Kirby, disarticulated her body and disposed of her remains. Forensic examination of the scene supported this and that there had been a sustained attack on Kirby and that Lowe was the person responsible for that assault. He subsequently denied those admissions and pleaded not guilty to murder. This has been an extensive and complex investigation which has been necessary to prove that Lowe is responsible for Kirby's death, disprove his various explanations as to why Kirby could not be found, and in parallel, because we've been unable to find any of Kirby's remains, a complex investigation to prove that Kirby is no longer alive. This has required extensive nationwide and international inquiries. Miss Noden's family have been put through a living hell with Lowe not disclosing where he disposed of Kirby's body and denying all knowledge in court. Lowe added to their upset by insisting that Kirby was still alive. We hope today's sentence gives them some comfort in the conclusion of the case and our thoughts and sympathies are with them. Kirby Noden's family also released a statement welcoming the guilty verdict recorded by the jury saying, Dean Lowe has taken away from us something totally precious, and although we welcome this verdict and sentence, it will never replace our loss. We would like to thank the ladies and gentlemen of the jury 
and all members of the Devon and Cornwall Police, especially D.I. Ian Ringrose and his team, for their extremely thorough hard work and relentless dedication to achieve a conviction. We would especially like to express our thanks and warm wishes to DC John Watts for his outstanding work and compassion during this case. Lowe's cousin Rebecca Tilford added, It's crazy how you can watch someone you know go from a sweet caring child who you play with in the garden to a murderer like someone you see on the news. The twisted killer people are talking about, that's not the Dean I knew, that wasn't my cousin. I still don't want to believe he's done it, I ask myself why all the time. On one hand, I think I've got my cousin sent down for life, but on the other, I think there's a mother who's lost a daughter. Kirby was so lovely, and she didn't deserve it. I feel devastated Kirby's gone, because she was my friend, and what he did was horrendous. I miss her all the time, but I miss the person he used to be too. I'm just glad he's now somewhere he can't hurt anyone else. Also following the conclusion of the trial, the close-knit community of Marazion, who had followed its progress, because you take interest if it's something that's happened on your doorstep, don't you? Spoke out of its shock and horror at learning the grisly details of what had occurred on the doorsteps in that basement flat. Kevin Smith, the owner of Cobble's Corner, a post office used by Lowe to attempt to withdraw cash from Kirby's account in the days after he'd murdered her, and who knew both killer and victim, recalled, She was very nice, but you didn't see him often. She tended to come in on her own, usually buying junk food. When she went missing, nobody could remember the last time they saw her. When he was arrested and charged with murder, it came as a huge shock, most unlike anything that has ever happened in Marazion before. We have quite an ageing population here. He must have been out of it on substances, but the overriding emotion is, poor girl. Another business owner who wished to remain nameless said, I was horrified like everyone else. I thought I hadn't seen her around for a while, but didn't think anything of it. The pair of them used to come in. He was fine when he wasn't drunk or high and seemed very normal. He never heard them. On the whole, they kept themselves to themselves. She was the one you saw out more, but you rarely saw them out with their dogs. She always said hello and was quite friendly, but you could tell he ruled over her. It's all a bit frightening and was a shock for the whole town. It's given Marzion a bad name. Sad is the word I would have chosen, for what sort of a lifestyle have you fallen into that no one can really remember if you're around or not, and it takes the confessions of a killer to make even your own family think something is up, because you've not heard from her in how long, and that's nothing to bat an eyelid about. Sad indeed, that is. The inquest opened several years after the trial on Tuesday, September the 28th, 2021, for, though typically it's the discovery of a body which results in an inquest being opened, as there was no body found in this case, Truro Coroner Andrew Cox had had to make a formal application to the Chief Coroner for an order to be granted to open an inquest in the absence of Kirby's body. Her family had been made aware of the inquest, but felt it wasn't necessary and did not attend, according to the Coroner's officer later, 
merely wanting to move forward and remember her as she was. Now, when there's a criminal trial involved, as in this case, there isn't usually any need for an inquest, but because the application to hold one had been granted after the criminal trial, it needed to be concluded. After the full circumstances of the case, as we've heard throughout the episode, were presented to the coroner's court by Detective Sergeant Christopher Rooney of Devon and Cornwall Police, Mr Cox said, It strikes me that the scene and what that poor officer was presented with was nothing short of horrific. We don't have a body and it follows we don't have a medical cause of death, but ensuring I'm consistent with the findings of fact made in the Crown Court, I'm proposing to put as the medical cause of death, blunt force trauma to the head, on the basis the judge found as a matter of fact, Kirby was struck over the head by a rock and a metal pole. As a note, Mr Cox added that his powers to write a prevention of future deaths report following the murder were not necessary, because following the court case a domestic homicide review had been commissioned, a review carried out when someone has died at the hands of their partner, and authorities review whether the incident could have been avoided, had they come to police mental health attention before, was the victim vulnerable, that sort of thing. He added, It's a legal requirement the inquest conclusion must be consistent with the outcome of the criminal prosecution. Here, we know Dean Lowe was convicted of murder, so it makes it inevitable, the only conclusion I will consider was that Kirby was unlawfully killed. That will be the conclusion I will record. It meant that Kirby's family could attempt to draw a line underneath the whole business and begin the prospect of moving forwards, however hard something like that must be to do. Following the closing of the inquest, in an interview years later with the Mirror newspaper, Kirby's mother Anita described the pain that she and Kirby's family still felt, saying, As far as I'm concerned, he should have swung from the end of a rope, but then that would be too easy, not like how he made it for our girl. I hate him with a passion. We're all absolutely devastated. She was so loved by her family and friends. I'm plagued by thoughts of what happened that night. I hope the first blow with the rock killed her. The force of the blow smashed the stone. I saw the broken pieces in court. I think he hit her that hard that that big rock broke. Then he used a metal pole on her. He killed her in January and no one knew until May. She was coming home. I think that's why he did it. Dean's cousin Rebecca Tilford called me and asked me if I'd heard from Kirby and I knew from her voice that something was very wrong. She told me she was missing and asked if I'd seen her but I knew straight away that she was gone. People told me, she's just missing, she'll come back. But I knew she wouldn't, because she wasn't here anymore. The police were so kind, they dragged the sea looking for her, and had divers out for days, but they never found her. She'd gone through the wheelie bins. When police called to his house that night, he apparently said, I thought you'd have come before now, with all the meat in the bins. I asked how no one noticed. I know the rubbish stinks anyway, but a body left there for days must have really hummed. How he didn't block the toilet flushing her down it is beyond me. For a mother to have to ponder such things about her child is just unimaginable, isn't it?
Whether Dean Lowe really ponders the magnitude of his crime from where he's currently being held in a Majesty's Prison Long Larton in Worcester, no one can say. He certainly seems to ponder his own predicament though, and though he's today denied the instant social media platform to post his inane wafflings and disturbing content online, he is still expressing the same kind of thoughts that possessed him to do so. Reportedly, he's become a prolific writer from his prison cell to family members and acquaintances who still give him the time of day, where he sends out all sorts, an example of which is an odd poem entitled Caged in a Box, where Lowe wrote, They say I'm a killer, give them one day in my shoes, they couldn't cope, they couldn't understand the way I feel, standing with mass murderers waiting to collect my meal, they want me to be good and change my way, how can I around these people and the games they play? It's like the world of against me, and nothing feels real. You better get used to that world, though, because your actions and the devastation they've caused are very, very real indeed. Disturbing case indeed this one, isn't it? And one that, unlike a lot that we feature here on The Enthusiast, one that there really does not seem to be any motive for, at least not one that Lowe will admit anyway. And it raised several questions with me. Was it the result of some argument where he'd snapped, murdered her, and then just disposed of the body? Perhaps Kirby, tired of their lifestyle, was making a real effort to build bridges again and to take steps to change her life, and Lowe was quite happy enough to exist as they were, leading to a murderous row. Or did he long harbour fantasies of murder and merely decided to kill Kirby when the urge overtook him, merely because she was there? Or was the murder a result of a drug-induced psychosis, and in his drug-addled state, lo, that day or that evening, whenever he killed her, was so out of it that he saw Kirby as someone, or something else even, possibly even killed her thinking he was protecting himself from who knows what. Now it's conjecture of course, it's just me thinking out loud here. If any of these theories are correct, and they're all terrible reasons aren't they, but had he then owned up in the cold light of the next day and admitted, yet yeah, I've killed Kirby, and then pleaded guilty at the first opportunity, then it may have been a different story for him come sentencing. But instead, to live with these actions for the next four months, and to then come out with some cock and bollocks story that stretches the limits of credulity, one cooked up after already admitting to several people, including a police officer, that you've killed, dismembered and disposed of her. It's an insult after the act. Why did Lowe just suddenly own up to his crime out of the blue like that? Now I had the disturbing thought also, and bearing in mind this is someone that blood and gore was never a problem for, as we've heard from his self-harming and living in filthy squalid conditions was fine for him also. If you head over to the show's Instagram page, there are images of the scene on there for you to see for yourselves. And in fact, it even said in court that living on the streets was much better. Then maybe, who says he got rid of Kirby's body immediately? Did he perhaps spend days, weeks, perhaps even months getting rid of his partner, piece by piece, taking a perverse pleasure in the various stages of her decomposition? It's just a thought, and it's a terrible one, but it's a very real possibility, for this is a disturbed enough individual to do so, after all. 
and since that night in May 2017, Kirby's family, friends and loved ones must have been, and most likely still are, tormented by such thoughts and questions. But mostly, the overall question, why? What a tragic waste of a life and an undignified, callous end to a friend, a sister, a daughter and a mother. I would love as always hearing your thoughts and feedback on our very first Houses of Blood episode, Butchered in the Basement Flat, which you can do so in the episode thread that's up in the episode show notes, or through any of the show's social media links. At the risk of sounding like one of the bloody vinyls I bought at the car boot I went to the other day, a broken record, you know where you can find me by now I'm sure, and I'm always happy to chat through any of the show's social media links. I'd like to remind also that I'll happily chat to anyone listening in person when I appear at CrimeCon 2022 down in London over the weekend of the 11th and 12th of June, which I'm stoked for. I had such a blast at it last year, and this year promises to be even better. It has a whole interactive weekend planned with several guest speakers, demonstrations, book signings, high-profile guests from the world of true crime, absolutely all sorts. But the place to be for it? Podcast Row, of course. I'll be there for the weekend alongside great shows such as UK True Crime, They Walk Among Us, Twisted Britain, Lady Justice, Seen Red, True Crime Investigators. There are loads of us there. Please come and say hi. Now, amazingly, it's not just London that you can catch this at either, but the whole CrimeCon experience will also be up in Glasgow in September of this year too. Should you wish for tickets to what is and promises to be a fabulous weekend, then by using the unique code ENTHUSIAST at checkout, you'll get 10% off your total cost of them, or if you're a Patreon supporter of the show, ENTHUSIAST code gets you 15% off. You can't go wrong, can you? I can't wait to see some of you there to put the world to rights with. With that, like Robocop's targeting system in the steel mill at the end of the movie, I'm off. I watched it recently for the first time in donkey's years and it was still as fab as ever. I thank you very much for joining me in the peaks for the episode today, which although I know is a horrific tale and the stuff nightmares are made of, that you found an interesting and informative one. I shall be back very shortly here on The Enthusiast with another tale for your listening. All that remains for me to say then is that I've been, I still am, and hopefully still will be Paul, the true crime enthusiast, wishing you all good and safe times, and I shall speak to you very soon. Take care all, stay safe, and goodbye for now.